Hello and welcome to the Prospect Sermons podcast, the preaching ministry of Prospect Baptist Church. This podcast is dedicated to the faithful exposition of the scripture and the edification of the local church. This is Parker Smith, Senior Pastor of Prospect Baptist, located in Fayetteville, Tennessee. Our prayer is that the sermon you are about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's Word, point you toward the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Prospect Sermons podcast. Thank you so much, choir. Y'all did a wonderful job this morning. Would y'all give our choir another hand clap of gratitude? And uh, they did a great job leading us. Again, I'm always appreciative for Scott and Kim, for all of our staff as they lead in their various ministries. If you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to turn them to the book of Malachi, chapter number two. We're going to conclude Malachi, chapter two, and move into chapter three. Uh, If you are a guest with us, uh, we practice what's called expository preaching, working our way through books of the Bible, working our way through the final book of the Old Testament, uh, that of Malachi. So if you turn uh, to Matthew, you've gone too far, turn one book to the left and you'll find the last book of the Old Testament called Malachi, or if you need to use the table of contents, please do so. Well, this morning, I will say this, it doesn't matter what I say, I will not be able to say everything here. (laughs) Um, or uh, what I want to say for that matter, there is simply no way to communicate in fullness all that is within this text, really, or any text that we come to. Um, This is precisely why um, it is important for you and for us that we read and study and absorb the Bible for ourselves. And that's why even last week, I encouraged all of us to be like the Bereans, right? that we would study and that we would see that these things are true in the text because, beloved, I wanna tell you, if you are only depending upon me as your pastor to feed you, know this, that your Bible intake, the diet of your Bible intake will be lacking. That expository preaching, as as good as it is and as right as it is, as rich as it is, and as high of emphasis as we place and the priority that we give on the word of God, here at Prospect, if all you are receiving is what you receive Sunday morning in terms of your study of God's word, if all you're receiving is preaching, let me say this, it's not enough. It's not enough. And I say that to encourage you to pick up your Bibles and to read and to read and to read them for yourselves and study for yourselves and to see with your own eyes what has actually happened within a given text and to drink from its life-giving spring for your soul. So this morning, I will, for the sake of time, I will take an, an unusual higher view than normal, not because of what isn't there in this text, but because of what is there in this text. And it would be incredibly easy as we dive into this to plunge into the depths of this text and literally spend weeks on this passage. And for those of us that are thinking or you may be asking, well, why aren't we doing that? Well, maybe it's akin to something for the same reason why you don't collect souvenirs at every milepost or historic marking on your trips that you take with your family or stop for gas at every gas station Uh, that you come to. Sort of a joke, but it is my pastoral way of saying I feel led for us to move through the book of Malachi. We will be taking a breather uh, here for several weeks, actually, as we come to the close of a new year and into a new year uh, as well. And we will pick up Malachi not again until January 23rd. So I just want to give you a heads up on that. There's a couple of one-off sermons that I'll be preaching as we usher into the new year and move forward in that. And so I say all that to know that if it feels slightly different, and I believe it's ever so slightly different this morning, that is why, it's because there's a lot for us to see. And many of us, when we see it, we want to stop and we want to gaze at it and we want to look upon its wonder and its beauty. And the good news, beloved, is that you can do that. And you can do it in your own study, You can do it in your own reading. You can do it and glean and read the Bible for yourselves and be filled with every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is good and it is his word. And so out of honor and reverence of the reading of God's word, I would invite you to stand as we read together. Malachi chapter two, 
ending in verse 17 and, or picking up in verse 17 and ending in chapter three, verse five. The word of the Lord says this, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and Lorm who you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. And I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, would you say amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as I've studied and prepared, I am overwhelmed. I'm in awe of your word. I'm in awe of the God of the word. I'm in awe of what he's accomplished for us in Christ. I'm humbled, perplexed in how you can justly forgive those who deserve condemnation. And you do it through your son. That he has taken on all of our guilt, all of our sin, all of our failures, And he's placed it upon himself and he's redeemed us from the curse that is rightfully ours. So Father, would you come? Would you move in power? Spirit, would you come? Move in our hearts. May we see Jesus in this text and may we make a way for he is the way, the truth, and the life. May we hear and listen and receive and believe and be changed by your word this morning. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. You can be seated. I want to call your attention to a couple of points this morning. The first of which is a weary people. It's coming out from Malachi 2 verse 17. Immediately, if you read the text and you notice my point that seems to actually communicate the exact opposite of what the text is saying. And if you notice that, that's good. It says that God is weary. Not the people, but you said a weary people. God is weary. This is the God who does not slumber or sleep, Isaiah tells us. He does not grow faint or he does not grow weary. Yet this text says God is weary, a figure of speech to communicate his disdain and of Israel's rebellion. How is God weary? The text tells us in two ways. It's by their statements and also by their question. Israel really is a weary and doubting people. They're a frustrated people. And in their frustration, point their frustration to the Lord and bring to him questions in their emotional state, bring to him flippant, rebellious, sinful attitudes. You see in Malachi 2 verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? God, Israel says, God, are you gonna do anything about evil? Why not? And in making a statement like that seem to be indicating that God is somehow siding with evil and wickedness in the world. And in doing so, attacking his divine nature, attacking his goodness, and to say that God takes pleasure in the wicked is absolutely absurd. These kinds of 
concerns that Israel has, that namely that of evil, was certainly not just limited to Malachi's day. This question was also asked of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. It was asked of the psalmist in Psalm 37, while we read that this morning in our call to worship, also in Psalm 73. It was asked of Habakkuk. It was asked of Paul. It was asked of Peter. It was asked of John. Job, too, wrestled with the problem of evil, that of theodicy. The question is this, if God is good, why do bad things happen? Why does evil exist? And why does it seem like it's winning? That's what's going on here in this text. Yet Job learned, as we will learn, that God is sovereign in and over evil and his purposes cannot be thwarted. It's easy to become weary and to wonder Is God ever going to do anything about my circumstances? And it's important that when we find ourselves thinking that, that we don't get too absorbed with self and we begin to ignore our posture and hearts towards the Lord. And that's what Israel was doing in this text. They were ignoring their hearts and their attitudes and they come to God in an irreverent way, in a sinful way. And they say to him, where is the God of justice? And here is Israel's attitude. Israel here saying, God, you must not be concerned with our affairs and with your people. If you were, why aren't you acting? Why aren't you responding to us? The people have become weary with the Lord as well. And in their weariness is because they have ultimately taken their focus away from the Lord and they've put it on themselves. And they said to themselves, poor me, poor Israel, Look at all the problems that we have. Look at all the promises that haven't come true for us. Look at the hope that we had for this great temple that hasn't come. The glory of God coming and resting upon his people. The hope of Israel, God's kingdom coming. The hope of the nations, the Messiah. And it hasn't happened. God, do you really care? You must not, they conclude. And then they say to God, effectively, give us what you told us you would. Though they themselves were disregarded to his way that they would have them live. And they say to God, give us what we deserve. Give us what is ours. We want justice. Give us justice. We must be very careful in asking that the Lord give us justice. Because ultimately, beloved, we do not want God to give us justice. What we really need is for God to show us grace and mercy. And that is ultimately the point of this text and the hope of this text. And that who can stand when he appears? And yet how ironic is it? It's that the same Israel that's demanding justice was in fact unjust themselves. The same Israel who demands that God come and punish evil was evil themselves. That's what we've seen in this text and what we've seen in the book of Malachi, that the priests bring flippant offerings to the Lord and the people bring their complacency and their walk to the Lord. And even in this text, God exposes the sin of the people and brings judgment upon those who are found to be in sin. How ironic is it that sinners as vile as Israel and the sin that we have seen in the book of Malachi, how can they want and really want God to bring justice now? And it's because in our sinfulness and in the sinfulness of our hearts, we are consistently inconsistent when we want to have justice. The thief is always outraged, is he not? when someone steals from him. The liar is deeply offended when someone lies to her. The expectation of sinners is routinely hypocritical. The cheater is always resents when he finds out that he has been deceived. And the murderer always wants his family to live in peace. Everyone wants justice, at least for themselves. But so often we have our way of justice and not the Lord's in mind, but we come and we say with our hearts and our minds fixed on Christ and not ourselves so we don't lose hope, but we continue to look to Christ, the God of justice, and know that in everything, 
in the good, the bad, and even in sin and even evil, he is still faithful. And he will not abandon or forsaken his people. And now Israel, even in their attitudes and questions that they bring to God, God is gracious in this text and gives to them a response. Point number two, God's response to a weary people. Pulling this from the next five verses in Malachi 3, God is a God who responds. And in Malachi chapter three, God begins, behold, I send my messenger. Literally, the Hebrew phrase there is the word Hanani. It means, behold me. God says, behold me. I'm here. You wonder where the God of justice is? Here I am. He is sovereign. He is good. He is pure. He is just. And he says to Israel, he is present and he is here. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord says ultimately that he will come. But before his coming, this text points us that there will be one who comes and prepares the way for his coming. This imagery is custom to the practice of kings who would often inform others of their coming to an empire or coming for a visit by sending a forerunner that would make proper arrangements to be made for the king who is coming. They would, in essence, prepare the way. They would start a royal procession. They would remove anything that might hinder progress so that the path would be made straight without any obstacles. And that's the meaning of the word that we have here for prepare in this text. It's the word panah. It means to clear the way or to make ready. The same word is used very familiarly in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And those of us that know our Bibles and know our New Testament, we know this to be John the Baptist, the coming and the preaching of a gospel of repentance. The kingdom of God is near, John the Baptist says, repent. The kingdom of God is near, repent. This is what Mark would say and portray in his gospel in Mark 1, Verses one through eight, this is what Jesus affirms about John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 10 through 14. And then Malachi says, declares that the Lord himself will come. There are at least three textual clues of a second messenger that is the Lord himself in this text. Note it. Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, that is Adonai, the Lord whom you seek, he will come suddenly, come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, there it is again, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi is likely borrowing from similar language that was used in Exodus 23, verse 20, in which the angel of the Lord comes to deliver the people and is nonetheless the Lord himself that is bringing deliverance from Egypt in the Exodus. It's signifying, Malachi is signifying that a new and better Exodus is about to take place through Christ the Messiah. And that Christ would come and dwell. He would, John 1 tells us, tabernacle among us. God would come in the flesh to his temple, the earth. But the burden of this text and the question for Israel is more pressing and demanding than Israel's question of the Lord. So the people had a question for God, but God's question to his people is really a more pressing question. And what is that question? We see it in Malachi 3, 2. But who could endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he 
appears? That's the question the Lord has for Israel. Israel surprised that the Lord would be coming to bring judgment upon them. They assumed that all was good. They assumed that they would be dismissed. They thought all is well with them. And you see that the reality is that it's not. The Lord will come and he will make judgment among them. And those who are faithful to the covenant will remain. Only a remnant, a pure people will remain of God's people. Look in the text, Malachi 3, verses 2 and 3 again. But who can endure? Literally, who can bear the day of his coming or the day of his judgment? Themes picked up in Isaiah 5, Amos 5, and Joel 2. Who can stand when he appears? Can you, Israel? It's the question being asked. He continues, for or because, he gives a reason. He is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. The fire, the imagery that's used there is used all throughout the Bible. It speaks of fire being used for purification, that different metals had different melting points. And so fire was often used as a method of removing any impurities or any imperfections. Lye or soap or fuller soap was used in the same way. It was a separation process. It was, get this, separating dirt from fabric. And that you would clean clothes by soaking them in water in which lye had been dissolved and you would literally beat them and scrub them against the rocks and finally rinsing them clean. Both fire and water are used to communicate two aspects of the same message. All of them are pointing to the same thing, are they not? Namely that of purification and cleansing. We know that because of what the next verse tells us. The same verse is communicating the same thing to us. Look at verse three. He will sit as a refiner, there it is, and purifier of silver, and he will purify. You see what's being communicated here? The sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. God is concerned with the purity and rightness of his people before him and he desires that they be pure and they be clean and that they be holy. But did you note that who and what that would be cleansed? It's hinted at in verse three and further communicated in verse four. Note the text again. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify, number one, the sons of Levi and refine them, that is the sons of Levi, that is the priest, like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and so the offerings now will be clean in the righteousness of the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem, that is the people, will be pleasing unto the Lord as the days of old, as in the former years. That is, as we've seen time and time again, from the priest to the people. The downgrade, the trickle of unholiness that we spoke of will be cleansed. And the priests will be purified, the offering that they bring will be pure, and they will give to the Lord from a clean offering with clean hands, and so the first aspect of the Lord's coming is that of purification and that of cleansing. And then, verse five, will be the judgment. Note the text, Malachi 3, 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. God coming close to his people, not as a comfort, but to judge them. And he says, I will be a swift witness against any list, seven types of people, seven types of sin, seven types of sinners. He lists them against the sorcerers, number one, against the adulterers, number two, against those who bear false witness, number three, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, number four, and understood against the widows and the fatherless, number five. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner, number six. And who do not fear me, number seven, says the Lord of hosts. And again, as we've seen, as I've communicated, even 
from the onset, we could literally spend our entire time here dissecting what all is said here, but no, all of these, all of these are explicitly condemned in the law. Every one of them. That of sorcery, that of practicing divination or the magic arts, condemned in Deuteronomy 18, that of adultery, fornication, or even spiritual adultery and idolatry, condemned in Exodus 20, bearing false witness, that is perjury, speaking falsely under oath, speaking falsely against someone, Exodus 20, oppressing or unjust dealing, that is abusing, exploitation, that is cheating others with the intent of receiving gain for yourself, condemned in Deuteronomy 24. God often spoke of the care that we ought to have for widows and orphans and his people ought to have for them. They are to be kept, they are be protected, they are to be guarded among God's people, yet these Israelites had no regard for them. The mistreatment of the sojourner that is to victimize, thrust them aside as worthless, condemned in Exodus 22. Fearing or rightful worship of Yahweh, God is to be revered, he is to be holy, not to be profaned as Israel was doing. His temple was to be pure, His offering was to be clean. And God's people have done all of these things that God has said not to do. Beloved, this was not a gray area. It was black and white. This was crystal clear, plain as day. Yet they want justice? The same ones that are guilty of sin before God want justice? These are explicitly condemned and present among God's people and in Israel. And the question, where is the God of justice? God says, I'm here. And I'm gonna draw near to you in judgment for your sin. And it says in this text that the Lord himself will be a witness against you and a swift witness against you. The case will be opened, the sins will be listed, the gavel will be swung, guilty. Case closed, open and shut. That's a swift witness. And God's work of purification is now complete and he brings about cleansing and renewal to those who are faithful so that only a remnant will remain that will offer him pure offerings from a pure heart with pure hands and the wicked will be judged and the land will be then cleansed of all injustice. That's what's taking place in this text. And so we come, that's not in your bulletin, to point number three, namely that of application. And I'm titling this the experience, experiencing the work and the grace of Christ. Many of you may be thinking, well, I'm glad that we know all about Israel's sin, Brother Parker, but what in the world does that have to do with me today? And I know that even as I've preached this morning, for many, the Holy Spirit, he has brought up several points of application already within your heart. You've been convicted and you've been encouraged for your need of repentance. I know this because God promises this will happen through his word and by his spirit. One of the common notions that when we come to the Old Testament is that we'll the Old Testament must not have anything for me. And honestly, that is a great misunderstanding. And we ought to be very careful not to read our Bibles in that way as if God only communicates through half of it. If we think that, if we think that way, it demands that we change the way that we read our Old Testament. Namely, that we read it in light of Christ. But we know that his word is truth and it's relevant for us today. Many of you have even said, Parker, 
Pastor, I didn't realize how applicable the book of Malachi was for us today. And they've even said to me that this study has been so incredible, incredibly practical for me as we've worked through this. And I have worked very hard to preach towards application in this series. And one of the challenges in preaching through the Old Testament, honestly, is the vast amount of content and richness within the Hebrew text as we see even today. And add on top of that, that many of us just aren't as familiar with the Old Testament as we are the New Testament. And so it's worth our time to unpack the context and the meaning so to properly understand what God is saying in his word and then bring forth and make application on this text. And so as we close this morning, I want to fly over briefly and make several points of consideration by way of application this morning. And they'll come up on the screen. I would encourage you to write them down and to think on them. I, there's no way I can unpack all that's in this application, but it is so rich. The first one is this. Who can endure his coming? Who can stand when he appears? One thing that's difficult to discern, especially from the perspective of the Old Testament prophets, and I'm thinking of specifically a prophet like Daniel, of what does it mean the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord's coming? Is it speaking of his first coming, that of his incarnation, or is it speaking of a final judgment, that is the day of the Lord, the ultimate day of the Lord? And certainly, we see that likely in Malachi, as we've even studied and learned and talked about just briefly, that Malachi is speaking of the incarnation in which Christ comes not to condemn the world, John three seventeen, but to save the world. Yet, even in his earthly ministry, even in his coming, he does bring judgment and speaks rebuke to the priests and the scribes and he's armed with a whip of cords and driving out the money changers from the temple, even in his coming. Yet, even still, we live really in between two advents, do we not? That the Lord has come and all of God's people anticipate the Lord is coming again. And on that day, he will come in judgment and he will come quickly like a thief in the night. He will judge the wicked and establish his kingdom on earth. And once again, at his coming, the messenger or the angel will cry out, the trumpet will sound, and the Lord himself will come, and Jesus will come and bring his final judgment on earth, and he will deal with sin once and for all. And on that day, who can stand? The wicked will be eternally condemned. Evil will be consumed in his wrath. Sinners will be rightfully judged and the righteous will be rewarded. And for those of you that are here this morning, apart from Christ, know not Christ, know this, know this. As mighty, as independent, as self-sufficient as you think you are, ah, don't give me that Bible stuff, I'm good. Will one day stand before the judgment seat of God, and you will give an account before the Lord, your maker. And on that day, I can promise you this, you will not have much to say to justify yourself. You will have nothing to say. The Lord will come, he will be a swift witness against you, and the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That's what Psalm 1 tells us. And you will not stand in the judgment. You will not endure his wrath apart from Christ. Who can stand? Who can endure his judgment? Who can endure his coming? Second application, this is us. There's a temptation to see this list of sin among Israel and I think, and maybe we think, how foolish are they? Sorcery, I mean, come on. Adultery, lying, Oppressive, unholy, wishing judgment would come upon other people and not you. This is us. This is us. 
Sorcery isn't just about voodoo dolls and tarot cards. It's what we do whenever we try to manipulate the Lord to our own end. When we use religion as a means of gain. When we go to church because it's gonna make our lives better. When we pray and treat God as if he's our errand boy to do whatever we want of him. Adultery, surely this means more than physical or sexual giving away. Jesus taught us that. For anyone who looks at a woman with lust commits adultery with her already in his heart. Surely all of us are guilty before him in committing this sin. Not to mention the idolatry of going after foreign gods of this world, the lesser gods of this world. We give our hearts away so easily to lesser gods and commit spiritual adultery and idolatry before him. In the same way we misuse the truth for our own gain, maybe we don't outright lie, but we just pervert the truth to make ourselves appear in the best possible light as we can. And how often are we silent in the face of oppression when we see it? How quiet are we when we need to speak out against exploitation in our world? How little we confront the sin of greed within our midst. How little regard we give to our neighbors who are oppressed, to the least of these, to the widow, to the orphan, to the unborn. For our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that are suffering and being persecuted, how little concern that we have for them and how we might help them. Yet oh, how quick we are to say, where is the God of justice when we too are the guilty party? This is us. And as we examine the extent of evil and the sin of others and in the world, we must always be willing to confront our own unrighteousness as well. Lord, help us repent of our sin. What a word this morning of personal application. Repent right here in Malachi 2 and 3. Repent. This is us. Repent. Number three. We see the seriousness that God takes sin and that he reveals and judges sin. This text is really encompassing what many scholars have called the riddle of the Old Testament. That the Lord passed by him in Exodus 34. The Lord is a merciful, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquities of the fathers and on the children of the, and their children's children to the third and fourth generations. And even here in this text, God comes to his own people, exposes their sin, is a witness and purifies his people and judges the sinfulness of his own people within this text. God takes sin seriously. God reveals sin and he takes it seriously and he judges sin. Fourthly, we see the God of justice extends to us mercy and is just at the same time. We should ask ourselves, hopefully, why is it that some in this text receive purification and others receive judgment? How does God bring both mercy, that is unmerited favor, and judgment at the same time? How is it that even though God is faithful and loving, that he is always still just? How is it that God can judge all the earth and forgive iniquity of the guilty and still be just and holy when he does that? Malachi maybe is not yet able to give us a very clear answer to that question but yet he knew that the Lord must forgive his people. The Lord must save his people because he had committed to himself to do it. And what we also knew is that he, this same God is coming as a holy judge for all the world. This is the same tension and burden that Paul had in mind when he writes in the book of Romans chapter number three, verses 21 through 26. You could turn there, it'll be on your screen as well. But now the righteousness of God 
has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth forward as a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice by his blood to receive, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Surely no one deserved grace. Everyone deserved to be judged. And even the hint of purification and refining is indicative of their sin. They're just as wicked. Why would God extend grace? Yet in divine forbearance, he passed over their sins. And it's because of Christ. It's because of what Jesus has done and that in Christ, God is both just and he is the justifier of sinners and that he is giving to them in Christ what they do not deserve exchanging their sinfulness for God's holiness. And yet he is just in doing this because there is a sacrifice that has been made for sin, namely Jesus Christ. And that points us to 4B, leading right out into that, is that Christ mediates a better covenant. He is the mediator of a better covenant. He is a better priest and he's a pure offering. All of this points us most explicitly to Christ, the messenger of the covenant. The messenger of the book of Hebrews says, a better covenant, Hebrews 7.22. This is what all the Old Testament writers and the prophets, even Moses looked forward to in Numbers chapter 11.29. And certainly Jeremiah and the hope of the new covenant coming in Christ this was the hope of Ezekiel, this is the hope of Isaiah, this was the hope of Daniel, and this is the hope of Malachi. That God would come, the messenger of the covenant would come, and there would be a new covenant found in Christ. And Jesus is meeting with his disciples just before his death in Luke 22. And he takes the cup after they'd eaten. And he says, likewise, the cup. This cup is poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. And he's the mediator of a new and better covenant. And that Jesus is about to be poured out for the sins of the world. That all the guilt, all the sin, all the condemnation that you deserve because of your sin is about to be placed on Jesus. Oh, how Israel needed God to move, how he needed God to save him. Oh, beloved, don't fool yourself. How needy we are and dependent we are on the Lord of the covenant, namely Jesus Christ, to redeem us. Who can stand before him? Who can endure his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Only those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Only those who have received his atoning sacrifice for sin. In Jesus, God himself came down to be with us and for us to redeem us. This is the just judge who comes as the lamb of God who would lay down his life for his people. Jesus is the better mediator of a better covenant. Fifthly, this points us to the refining work of the Holy Spirit. All of us in Christ are a work in progress, amen? Should be. He refines us, he washes us, he sanctifies us, 
in a great mystery, though God comes upon us and in total freedom and sovereignty and he saves us, yet in saving us does not instantaneously remove from us all of our sin and all the effects of sin from us. He is beginning his work of ridding us of our sin and all of our sin that is within us, perfecting us, shaping us, molding us, refining us, washing us. This process of sanctification, there is a lot of sin in your heart, believer. A lot of sin. And it will take a lifetime, Christian, of constant dying to self, constant forsaking your flesh, constant clinging to Jesus, constantly looking to Jesus. Put this to death in me that Christ may live until he returns or calls us home. And even further, sanctification is not only about ridding us of our sin, but it's also about healing our broken and weary and slow to trust hearts as well. That we often grow cold, that we He causes us to grow ever more in our faith, full of assurance, full of more dependency on Christ and constantly reminding us of our need for Christ and the need for his gospel. That even on our best of days, beloved, we still fall short and we will fall short apart from his grace. And even on our worst of days to know and to be reminded that in Christ, we are welcomed, loved, and accepted. It reminds us of the work of the Holy Spirit. Sixthly, God calls to himself a people, that is a remnant, who are to be set apart and holy unto him. I have a mind in this text, the people of the new covenant in Christ, that is those who have been born again, regenerated by his spirit, called out of darkness as holy, out of darkness of the world and into the light of Christ. I'm speaking, of course, about his church. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, but you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you think God is unconcerned with the holiness of his people? Do you think it doesn't matter what the church reflects to the world about Jesus? Do you think membership of the Lord's church is just about your name being on a list somewhere? Be confronted by the word of God in Malachi 3. Oh, that the church would be pure and holy unto the Lord and that our lives would be a pleasing offering unto him, Malachi 3, 4. And that our membership would accurately reflect the holiness and purity that the Lord demands from his people. Finally, seventhly, it points us to the hope of a coming kingdom. In this world, We, just like Israel, know the heartache, know the pain, know the striving, know that Jesus' words in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, are true. We know it's true. He says, take heart, I've overcome the world. We know the difficulty, we know the wonder. When is God gonna come and bring an end to this sin fully and finally? Why is evil winning? Why is evil rampant? It seems to be growing. Where is the God of justice? And the Lord says to Malachi, the Lord says through Malachi, his prophet, the Lord says, I'm here and I'm coming. And I'm coming again. And we cry out to God in this way, do we not come and finish this? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Bring your kingdom, bring your reign here on earth as it is in heaven. 
This is what Paul would write in Romans chapter eight. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation. Lord, help us if it's only the creation. But we ourselves, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you long for that day? That sin is removed from you? That sin is removed from your presence? That this old decaying body gives way to a new body? That this old sinful world would pass away? And the new heavens and earth would come? Paul says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen. Hope that is seen is, is not hope. For who hopes for what he has seen? But we hope, we hope for what we do not see. And we wait, we wait for it. We wait for it with patience. So that even if the Lord tarries, yet I will hope in him. I look toward, I pray for, I hope in Christ until he returns and fully and finally brings his justice, his peace, his kingdom into the world in which we will dwell in and be with our savior forever for all eternity. This is the final hope for his people. This is the hope for those who in Christ. And so we say, and we ought to pray even now, as this text reminds us, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come, come, establish your kingdom. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come, let's pray. Well, as always, thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Prospect Sermons podcast. If you'd like more information about Prospect Baptist Church, you can visit our website at prospectbaptistchurch.org or you can find us on Facebook by searching Prospect Baptist Church, Fayetteville, Tennessee. If you live in the Fayetteville area, we would love for you to join us in worship on Sundays at 1030 a.m. If you're not comfortable doing that at this time, we understand, but please know we are live streaming our services on Facebook Live. We do hope to see you soon and look forward to you worshiping with us. Until next time on the Prospect Sermons Podcast.